taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina and Ronan, Montana, uh, we want to bring to you the word of the Lord, coming today from Psalm 136, verse 1 saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His faithfulness is everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, hello, everyone. We've been praying for you. Praying that this reaches somebody that's that's seeking for seeking for information. Hey, just wanted to wanted to take a second here and uh, say if you have uh, questions and are seeking encouragement or seeking uh, information about the uh, theological topic or just seeking a good solid place to discuss something, look to the Bellator Christie website and look us up on the email or or look for information on the website. Uh, get plugged in. Uh, we've got a, got a lot of information there. Um, if we don't have it on there, we can certainly find it or send you somewhere to uh, get the information you need. Uh, we just pray that each and every day that you that people engage with uh, with a ministry that that loves and cares for for you, the listeners. Um, there's a lot of them out there. Uh, so, well, let's go ahead and welcome on Brian. We got a guest speaker today. So, hello, Brian. Hey, Curtis. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing good. Before doing we good, just gonna have a sip of some iced tea here because you know it's it's actually 75 out here right now, but tomorrow's <laughs> supposed to be like a hundred. <laughs> well, it's 77 here in North Carolina, and it's not going to be in the hundreds, but it'll be upper <laughs> upper 80s here coming up the weekend, and so uh, definitely enjoying this little respite, cool respite as we have. Hey, I want to give <laughs> yeah. one, one quick shout out before we uh, before we get started today. I actually ordered a copy of the uh, updated edition of the New American Standard Bible, the 2020 edition. I'm kind of a nerd oh. when it comes to new translations, so I'm <laughs> always kind of right. curious to get the newest edition and. Uh, you know, one of the one of the big things that many people say about the New American Standard is the way it was in the ninety five edition is that was while it was accurate, it was still kind of a little bit wooden. Uh, but I have to say, I've been impressed thus far with the twenty twenty update. Uh, it seems to be far more readable than uh, previous uh, editions have been. So I hope to maybe give a. Uh, kind of a commentary on the translation as I look at it a little bit more. Yeah. It just came today, and this is just kind of uh, just looking through it very briefly today. I've been, But thus far, I've been very impressed with it, and so uh, hopefully so, we'll have more on that to come. Is that, uh, is that a little bit more in line with the, uh, the ESV as far as how it flows, or is it more in line with the CSB? It's, it's a kind of a – it seems to me from what I've read kind of a – it's a middle ground between both. Um, really? I think it's you know again, and this is just looking over just a very few passages. Uh, you know, need to look over a lot more. But uh, anyhow, thus far, it looks really good. Awesome, awesome, cool. 
Well, we have a uh, well, guest with us today that I'm really excited to have on the Bellator Christie podcast. And I want to let you know we were talking about this beforehand, and we, uh, we, we, our podcast may go a little long tonight. And we are, as Curtis was mentioning before, we do reserve the uh, possibility that we may need to break this into two podcasts. But so that that is a possibility. But uh, but anyhow, this is going to cover some great material tonight. And so we're going to talk about Molinism and uh, here with what? us yeah man <laughs> and here with us today is uh, zach breitenbach he is a recent uh, phd a graduate from the phd uh, program in theology and apologetics at liberty university and uh, he has recently written a book called slipping through the cracks are some lost who would have been saved in different circumstances. And mm-hmm. so we're going to talk a little bit about his book today, and we're going to talk a little bit about what he's got going on in his ministry. So, Zach, welcome uh, to the Bellator Christie podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So as we ask all of our first-time guests, and and I know is as I know we're going to have definitely have to have you back on because this material looks really, really good. And so we're definitely going to have to schedule you for some additional podcasts. But as we ask all of our first-time guests, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to Christ and maybe a little bit about your ministry as well? Yeah, I would be glad to do that. Uh, well, I was raised in a Christian home. Um, but even though I, I was raised in a Christian home and had great uh, Christian parents, uh, I had a very questioning nature, and uh, I sort of had an existential crisis at uh, maybe age 7 to 10, where I, I really started uh, having a lot of doubts, a lot of questions, and, and uh, threw me into a bit of a spiral. We, we had a, uh, a Mormon family come and visit, uh, and my mom sort of prepared us for that um, and said, hey, we're, we're going to have some, some guests coming over, and uh, they don't believe the way we do about God. And and I uh, just want you to know that in case you hear some things. And, and that kind of hit me hard right away. I, di- I didn't really realize there were people that didn't believe what we did about God. And uh, and so that got my attention. I still remember my mom having this conversation with me. Um, and then these people came and stayed with us, and they were uh, – they were really fun. I mean, they had kids about my age and a little older, and we had a great time hanging out, and they, they seemed like really nice people, and they were nice people. And that really sent me into a, into a tailspin, wondering, like, okay, well, these people don't believe what we do about God, uh, and yet they seem like really good people. Uh, I wonder if everything my parents have told me is, is true. Uh, so that 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 led me into a lot of questions, and not long after that, I went crying into my parents' room at night, not even sure if there was a God, uh, you know, in my seven to ten year old mind, and I was about that age at the time. Um, fast forward just a few years uh, after that, I, uh, I ended up being saved at a Christian uh, camp one summer. I'd been to it for several summers. Um, and uh, I had a lot of questions still ever since I realized that uh, not everybody believed like we do. And, um, but they, the camp leaders really helped answer my questions that week. And uh, I just really came to uh, love the gospel and uh, want it to be true. And they really did help answer what questions I did have in my, in my young brain. Um, and it ended up being a sort of a Pascal's wager kind of thing, even though I'd never heard of Pascal or his wager or anything like that. But I remember thinking in my mind, you know, I want this to be true. And if it is true, 
uh, it would it would be really important that I believe it. And if it's false, I mean, I guess I might end up believing it. But uh, I was kind of scared of hell, and I was a little worried about the consequences of you know if it's true and I and I don't believe it. So it just seemed to make sense to me to uh, go ahead and place faith in Christ, and uh, that's why camp ministry actually means a lot to me. And I'm excited to still be involved in that uh, to some degree. Uh, even now, but uh, that's how it began for me, uh, and obviously I, I grew a lot uh, since then in my knowledge of God, And uh, but that was the basic uh, way I came to faith. You, you know, Zach, um, it's interesting how doubt can take many different forms, uh, because yeah. I was just thinking, because, you know, in your case, you met good people from from other worldviews, and it brought a crisis of faith, and for me, I met, you know, some people who were in the camp of Christianity, who acted very poorly and brought doubts, you know, in my mind. So, yeah. <laughs> kind of more like a moral, you know, issue, and then you know, historical thing. But it's interesting how doubt can take uh, different shapes, and how uh, why apologetics is very important. Theology and apologetics are very important. Yeah, and I, I think those were the seeds of my interest in apologetics because I, I mean, I didn't come to Christ purely on intellectual grounds or anything like that, but I did have a lot of doubts. And I did need some people to, to answer what uh, questions I did have. I didn't even know all the questions to ask at that age, but uh, they did a good job of, of helping me uh, want it to be true. Right. Um, uh, but anyway, I, I would like to add, too, that you asked about what, uh, you know, my ministry now. Um, I work for a, an apologetics ministry called Room for Doubt, uh, which is uh, affiliated with Lincoln Christian University. Uh, I'm in Lincoln, Illinois, Central Illinois, um, and Room for Doubt does a lot of uh, a lot of great things, including working at camps. In fact, we're going to be speaking at a camp in Minnesota um, called Pine Haven here in uh, in just a few weeks, and I've done that before. And I just I just love uh, camp ministry. So we we produced a, cur- a whole curriculum for Christian camps on apologetics topics that we give away, and we go and speak at camps. Uh, we also provide apologetics resources. Uh, for Christian Bible teachers that don't have training in apologetics but would like to begin teaching it. Uh, we, uh, I wrote a bunch of uh, PowerPoint lessons with detailed lecture notes, and uh, I've recorded a bunch of videos of me teaching these uh, so the teachers can learn it. Uh, we provide everything they need, student handouts, test questions, PowerPoints, everything. So if you don't know apologetics but you want to teach it, if you're a homeschool parent, you want to teach your kids, if you're uh, wanting to teach uh, if you're a Bible teacher and you have Bible college training, but you don't have apologetics training, uh, we will give you everything uh, you need to overcome the entry barriers to get into that. And we do a bunch of other things, too. We have a website called roomfordoubt.com where we answer a bunch of uh, questions on all sorts of apologetics topics. Um, we have an app you can download that does basically what the website does. And uh, so anyway, uh, download the Room for Doubt app. And uh, check us out uh, at roomfordoubt.com. And uh, there's a lot more we do, but that's uh, that's just a few a few of the things. Awesome, that's great. So 
I, I want to let everybody know that you have uh, written a book called Slipping Through the Cracks Are Some Lost Who Would Have Been Saved in Different Circumstances. And I, I want to let you know that uh, we're going to be covering some deep issues. And uh, Curtis is going to be kind of a buffer for us. He's going to, I want to ask the primary questions and he's going to ask supplementary questions to kind of clarify any, any details that we need to as we go along. And uh, so just to kind of let you know at the forefront, we're going to be covering some deep issues and some aspects about Molinism that that uh, many of us may not have ever considered. And to be honest, uh, much of the stuff we're talking about tonight are things that I've never considered, and I do consider myself a Molinist. So uh, very interesting material here, and let's just jump right in. So first and foremost, uh, how would you summarize the primary aim of the book? What is your intending to do through the book, Slipping Through the Cracks? And what is the problem of the quote-unquote contingently lost problem, and how is it different from the problem of the unevangelized? So, uh, so kind of explain yeah. that to us, and kind of summarize the primary aim of the burst. The, the yeah, primary aim of the book as we, first as we get yeah. started. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the the primary aim is is to try to uh, give a theodicy to deal with the problem of the contingently lost. So let me kind of unpack that a bit. Um, first of all, what does it mean to be contingently lost? Uh, if something is contingent, it depends on something else. Uh, isn't necessarily the case. It could have been different. So if somebody is contingently lost, that would mean that they are lost in the actual world that God created. Um, but in a, in a, had God created a different world, and in philosophy, when we talk about different worlds, we're talking about different ways that reality uh, could have been. Um, so a person who's contingently lost is lost, but in a different way that reality could have been. Another world of free creatures, where, where people do have free will, um, God could have uh, could have saved that person, right? So that person would have existed in a, in a different world that God could have brought about where, where people have free will, um, and yet that person would have been saved. So, so they're lost in the actual world, but they, they are contingently lost. It was sort of contingent on their circumstances. Had God put them into different circumstances or created a different world, a different way that reality could have been, uh, then that person would have been saved. Now, the book is trying to address that. So that's what that's that's what the contingently lost is. What is the problem of the contingently lost? This is the problem of, well, why would God allow there to be people like that? Why would God allow there to be people who are lost in their current circumstances or their actual circumstances, but they would have been saved had God put them in some different circumstances? Doesn't that seem problematic if God is is all powerful, all knowing, all loving? perfectly good that he would allow uh, something like that. And that's why the book is called Slipping Through the Cracks. Why would God let somebody just sort of slip through the cracks where if only he had given them different circumstances, they, they would not have been uh, lost. And, and the problem of the unevangelized is sort of a subset uh, of this problem of the contingently lost. So, so if you're contingently lost, it's what I just explained, but there's many ways that a person could be contingently lost. And one of those ways is if you never hear the gospel. Um, so the problem of the unevangelized is this, this idea that some people clearly never hear the gospel um, and they're lost. But presumably, 
at least some of those people would have been saved had they had they heard the gospel. Uh, and so why would God allow somebody to be lost due to the bad luck of their circumstances where they, they just didn't get a chance to hear the gospel? So obviously that's, that's part of the problem of the contingently lost, but the, the contingently lost is, is a bigger kind of problem because someone could actually hear the gospel and yet they're contingently lost. Uh, imagine somebody who is born in uh, Saudi Arabia, a largely uh, Muslim country, and they've heard the gospel. They've actually heard about Christianity, and they know what it is, and they've, they've at least heard about Jesus and what Christians believe about him. But they were very much indoctrinated uh, with Islam, and, and their, their parents taught them that Islam is true, and they never were given a really good opportunity to accept Christianity. Christianity was always being criticized, and they were always being told how it's wrong. And so it's not that they're unevangelized. But they are in rotten circumstances for actually becoming a Christian, and they end up being lost. But presumably some people like that would have been saved under different circumstances. Maybe if they had gone to the Christian camp I did when I was a kid, or had my Christian parents, or had this circumstance or that circumstance. So, so the problem of the contingently lost is why would God allow anybody to be lost when they would have been saved in different circumstances? But the problem of the unevangelized is more just about... Um, why, why would God allow some people never to hear the gospel? And wouldn't some of those people have been saved if they did hear the gospel? So, Curtis, so you have a follow-up? Oh, do I have questions? But we've got to keep it short. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, one thing I do want to do is I want to back way up to the very beginning of what you were talking about, Zach, is um, – you you said a word that I want to make sure we define our term and define what you're talking about. You said um, in a theodicy. Yeah. So 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 let's back up on that, and kind of get a framework of what that is, and then we can move on from there into the next question. Yeah. Very good, very good question. So a theodicy is is giving some kind of a plausible story or account uh, for how God can be reconciled with some aspect of evil, right? Uh, a little different than a defense, right? A defense is is typically understood to be sort of uh, at least a barely possible uh, way of reconciling God with with evil. Um, but a, a, a theodicy wants to go further than just a mere defense, something that's at least barely possible to show how God can be reconciled with with evil or some aspect of evil. And a theodicy wants to say, here, let me give you an account that I think is plausible. Also, when we're talking about defending the Christian God or reconciling the Christian God with evil, we want it to be consistent with Scripture, too. We don't, we don't want to give something that is at least philosophically possible but, or even plausible, but it, it just contradicts something in Scripture because um, that doesn't really help us to defend the Christian God. But, but a theodicy basically is uh, trying to reconcile God with evil in some way um, and, and doing it with, with an account that seems plausible, uh, seems reasonable uh, to, be, to be true. So in this case, we're talking about um, the soteriological problem of evil. And again, now this is another yeah. big What does that mean? Uh, the problem of evil that has to do with salvation issues. Uh, so here we're talking about... Um, God allowing some people to be lost when it seems like uh, God shouldn't allow that. 
uh, he should, or he should at least give them a better opportunity, or he should not allow them to just be lost due to the bad luck of their circumstances. So there seems to be a, a problem um, here with, with a good, powerful, all-knowing God who's going to uh, let people slip through the cracks in this way. Um, and, and so the goal of the book is to give a theodicy or to give some kind of plausible uh, and biblically faithful account that would, would show how God would uh, fit with this, um, this situation, right? The situation of there's people who never hear the gospel, there's people who are in rotten circumstances and they're lost. How do you fit God with that? And I, I think this is a situation yeah. that every soteriology or theological system would have to deal with to, su- yeah, to some degree. Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, uh, it's a problem. And some people don't consider it to be as, as much of a, of a problem. Um, certainly if you come from more of a Reformed angle, uh, some people are, are, are content to say, yeah, there's people who are who are lost and they didn't have an opportunity. In fact, they could never, they could not have chosen God and uh, God didn't elect them and they, they were lost and there was never an opportunity that they really would have been saved. God has to sort of flip that switch in them, has to give them the gift of, of faith. And if he didn't do that, then they, they, Jesus didn't die for them. They did not have an opportunity. So for someone who has that sort of perspective, they already kind of, bite the bullet on this, this sort of thing. Um, but, but a lot of people don't find that very satisfying, and they, they find that to be troubling that, that yeah. God would allow such a thing, and they would like some kind of account for how we could fit God with that in a way that doesn't seem uh, troubling. And I think you kind of answered the next question that we were uh, going to ask about, why is the problem of the contingently lost a significant one? But if you have some additional insights you'd like to share, uh, feel more than free to do so. But how, how, does this call God's justice into question uh, per se? How would you answer that? Yeah, I would say um, I would agree with William Lane Craig on this. Actually, he he says uh, this this problem is not so much about uh, justice. A lot of people would think this has to do with justice. It's like, okay, if God is fair, he's got to give everybody a good shot at uh, accepting his grace and, and coming to Christ. Uh, there shouldn't be some people that have great circumstances for accepting the gospel and others have worse. Uh, justice would seem to be a problem here. But I would say no. Uh, Craig would say no, and I would agree with this. God does not owe salvation to anybody. If, if God had decided, no, I'm never going to send Jesus, to die for anyone's sins, um, I'm not going to offer grace to anyone. Then we we're all going to uh, be lost. That then everybody gets what they deserve because uh, that is what we deserve. We all deserve to be lost. No one deserves to be saved. So if God chooses to save some and not others, uh, He's being more than fair. He's giving some people uh, more than what they deserve, and other people are getting what they deserve. So it doesn't seem to be a problem with justice, but. What Craig says, and I agree with this, the problem seems to be more with God's love. If God is maximally loving, then surely he would want all people to, to uh, have at least an opportunity to be saved. That Jesus would have died for all people. That, that uh, at least everybody, God, God's grace would extend to everyone, and, and he would truly want them to be saved, and he truly give them an opportunity to be saved. And so, so this problem, it seems to me, calls God's love into question 
um, not his justice. And also, we have to consider he's all-powerful and all-knowing. So he has the resources uh, to do something about this problem. Uh, and if he's all-loving, you know, he ought to want to do something about it, it seems. Um, and, and another reason it's significant is this drives people away from uh, Christianity. Uh, John Hick famously uh, was a scholar who was once a pretty orthodox Christian. Um, in fact, he was uh, a doctoral mentor to William Lane Craig, um, and he became a religious pluralist. Uh, and it was really over these sorts of issues. He, he became acquainted with a lot of people who um, uh, were good and decent people, and yet they, they didn't know Jesus. They came from cultures, parts of the world where many people were unevangelized. Uh, a quarter of the world, roughly, is unevangelized today. And uh, it was just hard for Hick to imagine that, uh, that Jesus could be the only way when there's so many people that haven't even heard of Jesus. Um, and this drove him to what's called religious pluralism. And this is the idea that there's many paths to, I won't say God, because pluralists don't like to use the, that word, but uh, many paths toward the ultimate reality, mm. or the real, um, or the ultimate salvation goal, whatever that yeah. is. There's many ways to get there. There's many paths, and it couldn't just be through Jesus. Uh, and so Hick and, and others have been driven away from Orthodox Christianity because of this problem, which is why I think it's significant, which is why I felt it was worth writing a book about it. Mm. Absolutely. Good. Curtis, you have a follow-up? Nope. Go ahead. Okay. So in the book, you spend a chapter explaining Molinism and its history and defending that it is uh, biblical and philosophically viable. So how would you define Molinism? Yeah, yeah. So in the book, I have a whole chapter that pretty much uh, unpacks a brief history of Molinism. So if somebody has heard of it or... or Maybe you're just hearing of it now, and you're like, yeah, I'd like to know about it. I don't know if I want to read a whole book on it. Well, I've got a chapter that deals with it and, and, and kind of puts it in a nutshell. So if you're interested in the history of Molinism, uh, Kirk McGregor has a great book called Luis de Molina that gives a lot of the history yeah. of it. But I, I put it in a bit of a nutshell in one chapter, and then I go on to define Molinism and what it is, and, uh, and then I give sort of a a defense of it uh, from basically showing how it's biblical and also philosophically reasonable. But kind of in a nutshell, um, to, to kind of summarize kind of what I'm doing there in that chapter, uh, Molinism goes back to a Spanish Jesuit theologian named Luis de Molina. He was born in 1535 and uh, lived to 1600. Um, so he was living sort of in that uh, Catholic Counter-Reformation time period. He, he was born after the, the Protestant Reformation started, but um, in response to the Protestant Reformation, there was the, the, the Catholic Church was doing a lot of reforming of its own. Um, and this is often called the Catholic Counter-Reformation. So I'm glad he, you mentioned that because a lot of people don't realize that he was in, himself, uh, in a sense, a reformer. Yes, he, he was... Uh, very interested in how God's sovereignty fits with human free will, because this was a big thing that Luther and Calvin and many of the Protestant reformers were dealing with, including Catholics, too. Uh, the Dominicans um, and the Jesuits were, were, were trying to work through some of this stuff. And, um, 
And so there was a lot of this going on, and people were struggling to explain how you fit God's sovereignty, providence, and grace with human freedom. And Luther and Calvin uh, were, were not taking uh, seriously enough for, for Molina, the, the, the human freedom part of this. Um, he liked that they took seriously the, um, the sovereignty of God and that God is fully in control of human history and how things play out. And, and he's very sovereign. And Molina wanted to affirm that, but he didn't want to do it at the expense of, of human freedom. And uh, Luther and Calvin were, were undermining that in his view and, and in my view. Um, and so he was trying to find a way that is biblically faithful uh, and yet we can reconcile these things. We can show that God is sovereign. He is fully in control of how human history plays out. And yet he does that through the free choices of, uh, of humans. Um, and so he, he wrote a, a book um, known as the Concordia, which has a very long Latin name, but we'll call it the Concordia. Uh, that's what it's commonly known as. Uh, he wrote that in, in 1588, and he's going to unpack what, what we now call Molinism. Uh, and Molinism is sort of the, the, the doctrine of middle knowledge. So let me explain what middle knowledge is uh, and how this uh, works, how this tries to reconcile God's sovereignty with, with uh, human freedom. So basically, in a nutshell, uh, Molina thought that God knows what any free creature would do in any circumstance. That, that creature could be placed into. God knows what any free creature would do with, with his or her free will in any circumstance that that creature could be placed into, even circumstances that the creature never is placed into, uh, even creatures that God never creates. God, God, there's, there's tons and tons of, of creatures and worlds that God could have made uh, of free creatures that he, he did not make. Um, and God knows how those worlds would have played out and what those what choices those three creatures would have made um, in circumstances that they never were in and they never even existed. Um, maybe to help get, get a handle on this, think of like uh, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Clarence the Angel, showing George Bailey things. He's not showing them uh, the future. Uh, he's showing him what would happen under different circumstances, circumstances that actually are not actual. They're what we call in philosophy counterfactual. They're, they're, they're counter to. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so just, just, just as an explanation, factuals are the things that do happen. Counterfactuals are the things that could have happened. Correct? Yeah, a counterfactual concerning what a free creature would do is to say something like this. Um, if this free creature were in circumstance C, that creature would freely do X. So it's saying if this were to be the case, hypothetically, this is what the creature would do. So, so basically, Molina thought God has like three sort of uh, what he called logical moments in his knowledge, right? So first, first of all, most basically, God has knowledge of all the possibilities. He knows what could happen. The key word here is could. Uh, he knows all the worlds that could happen, even worlds like worlds where like, uh, right now I start punching myself in the face. Uh, I, I'm not going to do that because that's, that's not what I freely choose to do. But, but there is a possible world where I start 
punching myself or I start screaming weird stuff right now or whatever. And I'm not going to do that. You'll be glad to know for your podcast. I'm not going to do that. But, I mean, there's a possible world where I do start screaming weird stuff right now. Yeah, and, and so that's the stuff. <laughs> hey, man, get right in. Yeah. So, so God's, God has natural knowledge. This first kind of uh, knowledge is what Molina called natural knowledge because God naturally or necessarily knows all the possibilities. He knows all the things that could happen. But not everything that could happen uh, is something that would happen, right? Like, I wouldn't and be in these exact circumstances, having free will, and the world is exactly the way it is, and I'm talking to you guys, and I just start cussing you out right now, or I start punching myself in the face. I'm, I'm just not going to freely do that in these circumstances. I'm not going to do that. Um, so God could not create a world of free creatures that's just like this one up to the present moment, and I'm here talking to you, and I have free will, and I start doing that. Uh, God couldn't create a world like that. It's not what we call a feasible world, a world that God could bring about. So this is where middle knowledge comes in. Uh, middle knowledge is not a very creative word, but it's the word that Molina came up with because it's in the middle between the, the other two kinds of knowledge. I haven't told you the third kind yet, but... Um, even though it's not a very creative word, his idea is creative. Uh, so he, he's going to say that God not only knows everything that could happen, that was the, the first kind of knowledge, he knows all the possibility, but he knows what would happen in any uh, circumstance. He even knows what free creatures would do with their free will in any possible circumstance he could place them into. So this is about the would. The key word here is would. This is what... Uh, creatures would do in this or that or any number of uh, circumstances. So now God can narrow down all the possible worlds that he knew with his first kind of knowledge to worlds that are feasible. Feasible means worlds that God could actually actualize. He could actually bring them about. Like he could bring about a world like this one where you and I are having this conversation. He couldn't bring about a world where I start screaming things right now in this circumstance because that's not what I would freely do. So even though God's all-powerful, um, you cannot make a free creature do something other than what they would freely do in a, in a certain circumstance. So, And that so, kind of so contradicts what Banez says. I know previously in your book that you mentioned uh, uh, Banez and, and some of the correlations he makes, and it seems to counteract some of his conclusions. Yeah, yeah. God can't make us freely uh, do something. Right. And so others would want to say, oh, yeah, God can make you uh, you can be free. And yet God makes you do that. No, Molina says, no, that that doesn't work. So so God uh, is going to narrow down the range of all possible worlds to those worlds that are feasible with his middle knowledge. He knows, OK, well, a world where Zach is, is talking to Brian and Curtis and he just starts doing weird stuff. That's not a world that I could make. It's a possible world. It's a world you could imagine. Um, but it's not a feasible world because that's not just not what Zach would do in those circumstances. So, so the, the, with God's middle knowledge, he knows all the worlds that he can actually bring about because he knows what every free creature would do in any circumstance. He knows all the possible worlds uh, or all the feasible worlds of free creatures. And then his third knowledge is he just actualizes one of those feasible worlds. That's all there is to that. He, he, then he knows what will happen. Right. So the key word here is will. Once he says, OK, I'm going to actualize that world where Zach exists and Curtis and Brian and they're having this podcast and they're having this conversation and they're saying all this stuff. 
I'm going to bring about that world. And he could have bring, brought about a different world of free creatures where, you know, maybe none of us exist. But he, he brought about this one, and we're having this nice talk. Well, now one thing I wanted to add to this, I noticed on uh, page 67, uh, you bring up some scriptures that uh, normally aren't identified, uh, but are very good proof texts uh, for for Molinism. And you mentioned Jeremiah 38, 17 through 18, where God reveals to Zedekiah what his enemies would do to him under the condition that he surrenders and under the condition that he does not surrender. Um First Samuel thirteen eleven through fourteen and, and I quote God reveals to Saul how he would have prospered as a king and how his kingdom would have been permanently established if he had not sinned by uh, illegitimately offering a sacrifice to God and then in First uh, Corinthians two eight uh, the apostle Paul says that if the rulers of this age had understood the wisdom of God then they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So that seems to me some very good proof texts uh, defending the the doctrine of uh, middle knowledge. Yeah, yeah, and it's going to depend on whether uh, humans have free will. Yeah. Uh, these would be good examples of uh, God having what we referred to before as sort of counterfactual knowledge. He knows he knows about what we would do in circumstances that never come about, like. He knows that if David had stayed in Keilah, uh, then Saul would have come to the city and the people there would have turned him over and, and, and that's what would have happened. But David's like, okay, then I'm getting out of here. So he left Keilah and then none of that ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't prove God has middle knowledge because what if, what if David and Saul and the people of Keilah don't have free will? What if they're just puppets? And God is, uh, he knows what they would have done in other circumstances because that's what God would have caused them to do. Uh, that wouldn't be middle knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so this is uh, having counterfactual knowledge, having knowledge of what would happen in other circumstances, what, what these creatures would do. That's necessary. That's a necessary condition for middle knowledge, but it's not sufficient because you also have to have a, a, that, that these are free creatures. Um, but if they are free creatures, then this would be middle knowledge, because then God, God knows what they would do in circumstances that they're not in with their own free choice. Right. Uh, so that is what Molinism is all about. That's what middle knowledge is. is he knows what a free creature would do in uh, any circumstances, even ones they're not in. Uh, so, so what we'd have to add to this is, do we find evidence in Scripture that God, or that humans have free will? And I think we do, yeah. uh, for a number of reasons, including the fact that we're responsible for sin. We have moral responsibility, and it's very hard, I think, to justify human moral responsibility if we don't have a very robust uh, libertarian uh, free will. Libertarian free will meaning you, uh, you have the ability to uh, do X or not X. You could. You, you you are not um, you could do other than what you do at least sometimes right you at least sometimes have um, the ability to do other than what you do um, and so if you think the Bible teaches that we have free will and you think the Bible gives uh, examples where God knows what we would do in other circumstances then that does lead you toward Molinism and and it's interesting that most soteriologies most theological systems hold that to at least some degree. Um, I've even known some Calvinists who would argue that 
that humans have some form of free will. And they may explain it a little differently than what we would, but uh, th there does seem to be that connotation in a lot of uh, systems. I want to point out one additional thing, and I, and I apologize, I'm, I'm slowing this one down <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but you, you bring out a good point. You bring up a good point on footnote 37 that you said that William Lane Craig points out in, um, in the Middle Knowledge View that uh, God's counterfactual knowledge was not questioned until Friedrich Schleiermacher in 1768 to 1834. And I find that very fascinating, that that's never even questioned until until that time. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people would, uh, would accept that. I think that's the basic... I think that's... The, if you ask a, a, basic, a Christian who hasn't really thought too much through some of these issues... Uh, but they're a Christian, and maybe they don't know much about um, Molinism. They never heard of it or whatever. And you just ask them, do you think that God knows uh, what I would be doing right now if I had been sick this morning and I was never able to be doing what I'm doing now? Like, do you think he knows what I'd be doing at this very second with my free choice? Oh, yeah, of course he does. <laughs> do you think God knows if, if I had sent that text message to this girl that I was going to ask on a date, but then I chickened out at the last minute and I never sent it, do you think God knows what she would have said if, if uh, or what, what her free response would have been uh, under those circumstances, even though they never happened? Yeah, I'm sure. God knows all things. And so if you think God knows all things, those, those sure seem like things to be known, you know, yeah. and we even think that we know uh, these kind of things ourselves sometimes. Like, We'll say something like, if I had known you were coming over, I would have cleaned the house. Uh, and you, you say, okay, well, I, I think it, in the uh, event that I had known something that I didn't know, this is what I would have done. And I'm pretty sure that that's true. Uh, so that's, this is a case of me knowing a truth about uh, what I would do in a counterfactual situation. And most people say, well, surely God would know stuff like this. What, what does it mean for God to be all-knowing? And the Bible says many times like things like God knows all things. How could God know all things if he doesn't know what a free creature would do in non-actual circumstances? It seems like there is a truth about it. Uh, so, yeah, I think a lot of people don't uh, don't question it until they maybe they start mm, rubbing up against some of the, the people who are anti-Molinism yeah. or they start looking into this and then they have some other reasons. But, but the common sense thing is to say, well, if God knows everything, it seems reasonable he would know stuff. He's really all known. Curtis, I've been hogging a conversation. I apologize, brother. Do you have any questions to ask? <laughs> I do. I do. But um, so, so Zach, what do you say? This is just a, this is just something that kind of came up. What do you say to those that say that uh, that Molinism is more more of a philosophical uh, claim and can't be rebutted or defended? Uh, against scripture or with scripture. Yeah, and in that chapter on Molinism, I, I give the history and then the definition of Molinism. Then I have a whole section where I talk about the biblical case for Molinism. And, and um, I, I give several uh, biblical teachings. What I take to be pretty clear biblical uh, teachings or evidence is that Molinism is true. Uh, mm -hmm. And that would be things like God has knowledge of what uh, people would do in non-actual circumstances, like what we were just talking about with David and Keilah and others. Uh, and then we have good reason to think that, that humans have free will, uh, just just from the fact that, uh, you know, like with, with, with Cain, 
uh, God was saying, uh, sin desires to master it, but master you or have you, but you must master it. You must overcome it. Um, in the New Testament, it talks about uh, how you do not have to sin, right? You, uh, for Christians, at least, we, we have a, God will provide a way out so that uh, when you're tempted, you do not have to give into it. God will mm-hmm. provide a way out from under it. So um, a number of passages in the Old and the New Testament would make us think we have some kind of free choice. We we're not robots. We have real responsibility um, morally. Uh, I mean, sin is at the very core of the gospel. We're, we're sinners. We are responsible for what we do. We need God's grace. Um, and it's, it's hard to make sense out of uh, sin and human responsibility for sin if we don't have a real robust freedom. So I think we have good biblical grounds for affirming humans have mm-hmm. uh, freedom. And we have good biblical evidences that God knows what free creatures would do and on actual circumstances. And therefore, even though you won't find any text in the Bible that says um, God knows what any free creature would do in any world, uh, the free creatures were, you know, he's not going to have this philosophical explanation of Molinism that I just. And neither do you find Tulip. No, right. Yeah. I was, I was just gonna say, Zach. I mean, and, and this is, and forgive me because I'm, I'm, I'm I don't want to go off on this subject, but the thing that drives me nuts is the people that are hard, hard Calvinists or hard Arminianists. They, they, they throw out these scriptures to us constantly to try to rebut or or to go against it as if we hadn't looked at those scriptures like as if it oh there it is there's the reason i don't believe in that it, you know do you see what i'm saying it, it it's yeah. it's kind of frustrating to me that it, it's it's viewed as if we haven't investigated the scripture deep enough yeah and hopefully you know if someone reads my this book with a with an open mind and reads the case i make from the bible they'll say well yeah it seems like god does know if the bible clearly teaches god knows right. things that are not actually it does seem like we have free will at least there's a good case to be made for that and it also seems god has an enormous providential control over the world right. even through our free will like think just about the the death of jesus how many right. people were involved at herod and pilate and the Jewish council, and yeah. uh, Judas, and all these people that were making choices that that God knew what they would choose. And, and multiple times in the book of Acts, it says that God in his providence uh, put Jesus to death, had this happen. Um, and, and so it's both true that God providentially had this happen, and that all these people were responsible. They were making choices. And it's very hard to see how God could have this meticulous control over the world, a world of free creatures, uh, if and know what they would do in these circumstances, uh, if he doesn't have middle knowledge, and even many non-Molinists um, will say things like um, Molinism is kind of the only game in town. If if you want to reconcile yeah. meticulous sovereign control and uh, uh, and sovereignty with uh, uh, robust uh, human freedom, so. I do want to reconcile those things, and therefore I think it's biblical. I want to read a passage from your book here, uh, which says the, the fact that, and I quote, the, this is on page 77 and 78, the fact that God does not determine our actions and yet knows what we would freely choose in non-actual circumstances strongly indicates that God has mental knowledge. Furthermore, Molinism may be the only mechanism by which God can be fully sovereign over a world of free creatures. 
It is also worth noting that Molinism, if true, has the benefit of, benefit of resolving much of the tension between Calvinism and Ar- Arminianism. And you go on to say the Molinists can affirm with the Arminian that humans have libertarian freedom, but also with the, with the Calvinists makes sense of substantive sovereignty as well. And uh, Molinism can even affirm in a sense in which God elects individuals to salvation. So mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. I think it's the best game in town, if not the only game in town, if you accept the fact that people have free will. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and some, somebody could be more of a Calvinist and also be a, a Molinist. Uh, you, as a Calvinist, to really be a, a Calvinist, you have to think we don't have free choice with regard to accepting the gospel. But, but some Calvinists will say, but I think we have free choice with basically everything else. And so, <laughs> so then they can be a Molinist, and they think the way that God orchestrates this world of free creatures is that he has middle knowledge, and he's making sure that uh, the world plays out the way that he wants it to through our free choices. But when it comes to this really important choice, really the ultimate choice that we make, well, we don't have a choice. Uh, <laughs> God doesn't give us that choice, he, but he gives us all the others. So one can be sort of a Molinist, uh, Alvin Plantinga would kind of fall into this. Uh, yeah. he, he is a Calvinist and, and a Molinist, mm-hmm. and he thinks we don't have free choice with regard to accepting the gospel, but we do with other things, and so he still has a place for Molinist, for God's middle knowledge and how he, God uses that to orchestrate a world of free creatures. Looking at our next question, did Molina himself have a particular view about how God uses his mental knowledge with regard of predestination or predestining who would be saved and lost? Yeah, Molina did have a view, um, and, and but, but his view of predestination, uh, of what God does with salvation, his view is not one a Molinist is obligated to have. And this is, this is something that people get confused a lot. They think... Because Molinism gets connected to soteriology so much, to salvation issues and questions, like what I'm doing in this book, uh, people uh, often think Molinism is like an alternative to Calvinism or Arminianism. It's like a soteriological view, the view of salvation. It's really not. It's a view of God's knowledge. It's a view of what God knows or doesn't know. And it's to say God knows what free creatures would do in any circumstance. That's what, that's what it is. Um, but you can, you can think that God has that kind of knowledge, and you can think that God applies that knowledge in different ways toward predestining people. You could have a very Calvinist-leaning position on soteriology and be a Molinist. You could have a very Arminian view. You could have something in between. It, it all depends on how God uses this knowledge. And so Molina did have a view, uh, and I'll tell you what it is, um, but it, it's not like if you're a Molinist, concerning God's knowledge, you think he has middle knowledge. That doesn't mean you have to agree with Molina's uh, view of, of predestination or what God does. So um, here's what Molina thought. He thought that um, God sort of is going to, uh, anybody who's going to be saved in this in this world could have been lost, in an, or would have been lost, I should say, in another world, right? So uh, let's say I exist in this world, in the actual world, and I'm saved. Well, God could have created me in a different world of free creatures where I would have freely chosen to be lost. Um, he also could have created a world of free creatures where I don't exist. And so Molina said that because he wanted to think that every single person who is saved is not saved purely because 
they chose to accept uh, Christ. They're not saved purely because they uh, they responded to God. They um, they're saved also. They are saved because they freely chose that. But they're also saved because God created them in a world where they were put into circumstances where they would make that choice. And God could have put them in a different world in different circumstances where they would not have made that choice. So you can, no one can ever say, um, I am saved because I chose to accept Christ. Uh, yes, you were saved because you chose to accept Christ, but not only because of that, you, you could just as easily have been lost had God put you in different circumstances. And so Melina actually thought that everyone who is saved is contingently saved. That meaning they could have been lost in a different world of free creatures. And everyone who's lost is contingently lost. They could have been saved in another world of free creatures. And they also could have not existed in a world of free creatures. So everybody owes their salvation to God and can't take any credit like, oh, it's all because I accepted God. Um, so he wants to have sort of an unconditional election. It's not, I don't think it's fully unconditional, though, because it does depend on the creature's Free response. I guess it's only unconditional if you think everybody would be both saved and lost in some world, uh, which I don't think is necessarily true. Why couldn't it be the case that some people would reject Christ in any world? Of free world. That's, I that's, certainly think that that's possible. Kind of more the Suarezian um, position. Yeah, so then you got Suarez, right? And, and this is a good contrast. Francisco Suarez was also a Molinist and a Jesuit. And, and he thought that God wanted to damn certain people and save others. He wanted, he wanted, God God starts out and he says, okay, I want to create this person, this person, this person, this person, and I want them all to, to go to hell. And I want to create this person, this person, this person, I want them all to be saved. And then he's going to orchestrate the world to bring that about. So, so God's going to create a world where he can ensure certain people end up being lost, and, and he can create a world where other people end up being saved. And Molina totally disagreed with that. That, that was, but, but they're both Molinists, right? So you see how you can be a Molinist, and, and you can think God uses his middle knowledge maybe because he wants to damn certain people. Or you can think God doesn't do that. Molina didn't really think, so, didn't really speculate as to why would God would create this world. Would you say that, that, it, that it leaves the door open, like if you were wanting to take more of a Wesleyan approach to this, to the Suarezian position, to say that God desired to save everybody, but but chose to save those who would be willingly come. Would that fit more into the Suarezian position, you think? Or would that fit more into the classic Well, I think it would fit into the Suarezian position, would it? Well, Suarez wants to say that God started out. Like, the the first goal he has is to make sure certain people are lost and to make sure certain people are saved. And, and that was like the logically prior thing that God wanted. Mm-hmm. Like, and everything he does after that is based on that goal, right? So he wants, he wants certain people to be lost. And he's like, okay, how can I create a world where they're going to freely choose to be lost? And how can I create a world where these other people are, that I want saved are going to freely choose to be saved? And he designed the world with that goal in mind. Uh, where Molina says he doesn't design the world with the prior goal in mind of, I want these people saved, and I want these people lost. God just creates a world for reasons known only to him, that whatever he sovereignly chooses to create, and uh, everybody that's saved is just, just we don't know why certain people right. are saved and certain people are lost. Molina doesn't really speculate that much about it. 
other than to say everybody who's saved could have been lost. Everyone who's lost could have been saved. Um, but it's very different. Very different positions, and both are Molinist. And you can come up with many other Molinist positions about predestination or salvation so it, or election. So it, it's not like anyone should think if you're a Molinist, you're kind of like locked in on a certain um, – position sure and i think that's kind of the beauty of the position that, that there can be variations uh, with a molinist approach F- folks i want to take a moment here to say that uh as we mentioned at the at the uh, outset of the podcast we it looks like we're going to divide this into uh, two podcasts and so uh, this is going to be part one and we'll end part one at this section and so coming up next week, we're going to pick up uh, with our conversation uh, with uh, Dr. Breitenbach as we continue talking about his book, Slipping Through the Cracks. Uh, you're listening to the Bellator Christie podcast, and we'll have the conclusion of this podcast coming up next week. Yeah, that's, uh, we've been having a, a wonderful discussion with Zach Breitenbach. Um, and uh, this book here um, so we're we're gonna split off and, and go to go to part number two uh, so we'll catch you next week uh, but we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us and we value that time our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place place to strengthen your faith faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, So drone, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and BellatorChristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today.
Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristi.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristi.com now and submit your question.